The Climate Papers, the COP26 Universities Network podcast. Hello and welcome to The Climate Papers, a new podcast series brought to you by the COP26 Universities Network, hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, and by my special guest, Alicia Gilbert, who is not only chair of the network, but works at the Grantham Institute for Climate Change and the Environment at Imperial College. Alicia, hi. Hi, morning, Amanda. There's so much to talk about, but before we dive into our first programme today with our special guests, Professor Cameron Hepburn and Dr Jennifer Allen, I think perhaps we should set the scene a little bit, shouldn't we, by explaining just what the university's network is and what it's been set up to do. Yeah, thanks, Amanda. So the COP26 University's network is a grassroots group, really, of academics and professional staff across now 55 and growing UK universities who are really dedicated to trying to make sure that the UK government, who are going to be the presidents of the forthcoming climate negotiations in 2021, do a good job of it. So essentially, we're really lucky in the UK across all disciplines from social sciences through to natural sciences and engineering. We have really, really rich thread of expertise on issues related to climate change. And for all of those people, this presidency is a real opportunity to try and make a difference to global action on climate change. So this network has that purpose to try and use our academic prowess and professional skill in the academic sector to make COP26 hosted by the UK a success. And to do so, we've got a whole load of activities that we're doing. And one of them is to take our evidence and knowledge and try and share that with decision makers in the UK and also with our international partners in the lead up to these important international negotiations to really make a difference. And that's where the network paper briefing series comes in, isn't it? And those are the things that we're going to be discussing in this podcast. But 55 universities, that's pretty impressive. Um, the words like herding cats come to mind here, but it, but it's wonderful that we've got that synergy across so many institutions. Um, are you, are you having to turn anyone away because it's 55 and growing sounds like a lot to manage? Uh, oh, absolutely not turning anyone away. Um, we want, um, hopefully, you know, all the UK universities as part of this. I think what was unexpected when we started to bring people together was really the will and the passion that people across this sector have to to collaborate and participate together. In the academic sector, there's a lot of competition and that makes sense. You know, you want to push people to do their best. Um, there's limited funding and so on. But on this issue, everyone really is united. And we seem to have tapped into a need for people to work together again across disciplines to try and, and affect change. Well, that's because climate change affects us all, isn't it? But I mean, that idea of collaboration across university sectors is so important because we, we haven't got time to argue about some of this stuff. We've got to work together to find solutions that work for everybody. And the theories that we're going to be discussing in our podcast are really to look at what some of those recommendations are that you're making in the policy papers. What does it mean for business, for academics, for all of us? What does the transition to net zero mean, really? And how will it affect jobs and the economy and our lives at home and at work? So our first discussion, really timely and significant, addresses the prospects and pathway for a net zero emissions economic recovery from COVID-19. So really putting the idea of, of the green recovery linked to COVID into the wider climate change discussion. And to discuss that, we're joined by our two special guests, Cameron Hepburn, who's Professor of Environmental Economics at the University of Oxford and Director of the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. Cameron, this is going to take a long time because there's a lot to say here. You also serve as the Director of Economics of Sustainability Programme based at the Institute for the New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School. 
Cameron's published widely on energy resources and environmental challenges across disciplines, including engineering, biology, philosophy, economics, public policy and law. I'm going to take a breath. Cameron, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amanda. I'm always slightly embarrassed by these introductions. (laughs) They reflect a a short attention span and an interest in far too many things. Okay, we can rerun that. Can I just say hello and welcome to our guest, Professor Cameron Hepburn, if you like. (laughs) I think it's really, really important um, that we have that context because obviously you're not just representing yourself, representing lots of institutions. So welcome. Our second guest is no less distinguished, Dr. Jennifer Allen. Um, She's a lecturer in international relations in the School of Politics and Law at the University of Cardiff. And she's also a strategic advisor and regular contributor to the Earth Negotiations Bulletin. And we're going to ask her about that because it sounds fascinating. Jennifer's research explores environmental and social movements and how global rules are made and remade. And her recent work has focused on the politics of sustainable post-COVID recoveries, including green stimulus packages in the UK and the emergence of the green recovery norm globally. Jennifer, welcome and thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hi, thank you. So really, almost from the moment the pandemic took hold in the UK, there was talk about what happens when it's over. And I think back in April and May, we all assumed naively that that was going to be a lot sooner than it has turned out to be. However, the general mood was that post-COVID had to be better, had to be greener, and that an economic recovery had to be a green recovery. Jennifer, you're the lead author on this paper. I wonder if we could start with you, because obviously since since it was published in the early part of the year in June, things have got more challenging and more urgent. You know, there's a high level of government debt, there's high levels of redundancy, there's business failures from high street leaders to local retailers. So I wonder if I could ask you to start by saying, why is a net zero emissions recovery the right approach to now for resetting um, and restoring the economy? I think there's several reasons to make the case for a green and inclusive recovery now. Uh, one is that after a year like this, we just need some hope that the future will be better and we can do that. And crises like this can, can create opportunities to re, reimagine that future. And it can create opportunities to invest in how we want to lock in that future. The the second, and I think maybe the most compelling reason, especially if we're thinking long-term, is economic. If we transition now, that saves us transitioning later when it will be more expensive. If we invest in people and nature and skills towards a green recovery now, then we don't have to make those investments later and try to make up for any of the damage that perhaps would be caused by investing in fossil fuels today. Is there a kind of short-term, long-term argument about this too? Because, I mean, obviously, some of the the eye-watering figures that we see being spent by by the government or proposed by the government, a lot of them are going into those very quick fixes as well, aren't they? So is there? how does the short-term, long-term economic recovery argument work in this space? It's really interesting now, especially if you think back to maybe 2008, 2009, when we were coming out of the last big crisis. The technologies for green recovery you could think of wind, for example, or solar, have never been cheaper. And so we can move on these technologies now in a way that we couldn't, uh, gosh, 10 years ago. So I think the short-term, long-term is actually a little bit overstated. Uh, Cameron might have other views on that one, of course. But it's it's more possible now to move on these uh, technologies more quickly. We have more uh, experience in nature-based solutions than we used to have. So really, we can pivot in a way that we couldn't after the last crisis. Yeah, I think what we've seen um, 
since the pandemic broke out is a number of phases of response from government. So, so in the first phase, it was really just about rescuing uh, livelihoods and jobs and, and companies. And these rescue packages, uh, and we, we've analysed them. You know, we have a team at Oxford looking at this in some detail, analysed now 2,000 different policies around the world. And the rescue packages tend to be pretty colourless. You know, they're not green. Uh, they're not, they're not clean. They're not dirty. Um, they are, they're just trying to keep things going. Now, you could argue that because the status quo, the current economy is fossil fuel driven, uh, keeping things going uh, perpetuates the fossil system. Uh, but it's a short term necessary fix. You can't let, you know, can't let people die. You can't let companies go out of business on mass. So in a way, the, the area of real interest is the second phase, which is the recovery spending. You know, as Jen's just pointed out quite rightly, people want some sense of building back better, developing a, an economy that is fit for purpose for the future and gives some hope and some optimism. And, and this is more than just um, you know, nice words. We, we know the way economies work. Beliefs really matter. If people believe there's going to be a strong recovery and a clear vision, then they will hire uh, and they will invest. And if they hire and invest, you actually do get that strong recovery. So the, the, quite a lot of uh, economic activity at the, at the emergent level uh, is a self-fulfilling set of phenomena. So, so the words we use and the visions that we paint are actually incredibly important. And as we look through the recovery spending so far, and of course this has been it's not not a simple you know part one part two because we've had wave one of the virus we've had wave two of the virus that may well likely be wave three so we're, we're kind of flip-flopping around a bit here but but the recovery spending is what we've focused our analysis on uh, and that's um, been very very promising in some parts of the world and the uk is one uh, europe more generally the french and the germans are are really transforming their economies as, as we watch. So are the South Koreans. But then you look in other parts of the world and, and the picture is significantly more mixed and frankly a bit worrying. Um, you know, I could name names and perhaps will if you press me. Uh, so, <laughs> I might so press you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's, um, I think there's a number of missed opportunities here while there are also some points where you say that's exactly what we should be doing. I'm, I'm not going to press you to name names because I, I, that might be awkward. But what I might do is press you to give us an example where you say that, the, 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 that it's more worrying and some of the responses have been mixed. In what way is it worrying? Is it because it's just a lost opportunity or because it because there's uh, no sense that they're looking at a green reinvestment, green recovery post-COVID? Yeah, so Amanda, it's a good question. It's a bit of both. I mean, in some instances, it is just a missed opportunity. You, you've got vast amounts of spending. You've got a transition that has to happen. The spend has to happen at some point in time, the sooner the better, and we didn't do it. And that's pretty bad given the urgency uh, that, that we face here on the climate challenge. In some instances, it's worse than a missed opportunity. It's money directly going in to propping up an industry that actually needs to be phased out. So it, it, it's worse than, you know, kind of mildly bad or, or neutral. It, it's positively counterproductive. Uh, and I mean, uh, you know, there, there's still, there's still investment into fossil infrastructure. Um, there's investment. Okay. Perhaps to name one name, you know, the South Africans are bailing out their uh, coal fired, um, uh, monopoly utility effectively. Yes. You, you see other countries 
uh, bailing out the aviation industry without the kind of conditions that the French put on their aviation bailouts to half their emissions by 2030. Uh, and so th those kind of perpetuations of very heavy emitting, highly polluting industries is exactly what we don't want. Yeah. And how are we faring in that global picture, Jen? Because I mean, obviously your work with, you know, the, the many years you got of experience working with the Earth Negotiations Bulletin and being in the UN system, how do you feel we're faring as the UK? Because we have bailed out our aviation industry to some extent, haven't we? There's been a lot of good talk and we've had the 10 point green plan, which we need to talk about. Um, but on just on a sort of scale in terms of some of the other countries around the world, how do you feel we're, we're faring to date? It's an interesting question, particularly because the UK is the incoming COP president of the next UN meeting. So there's a lot of eyes on the UK. Uh, and so the decisions have been a bit mixed. So there have been decisions about not funding fossil fuels with development assistance anymore. That's incredibly po uh, positive news. But at the same time, the 10-point plan was largely recycled promises. And so we're, we're seeing a little bit of a disconnect between what happens in domestic spending and what happens in international spending. And so it's actually a bit difficult to really pinpoint where the UK stacks up. Uh, we know that the Republic of Korea and the EU have already committed to green recoveries. Uh, the election in the US is very positive because Obama had quite a bit of green stimulus after the last economic crisis. And so potentially president-elect Joe Biden could have something similar. Uh, so the UK is in a leadership position. Uh, it's just a matter of how they decide to use that. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes concerning to those of us who are not perhaps fully, you know, immersed in this topic to see the announcements being made, but then to see there's not much follow through. And, and I look at some of the announcements that have been made recently and maybe going back to that, that thing about jobs, that point about jobs, you know, a lot of the announcements are about, you know, how many jobs we'll create. So, so, so there'll be a, a bit of a boost, but are we really building in the kind of resilience we need, both resilience in terms of our ability as a, as a, as a nation to react to climate change and manage climate change and manage adaption and mitigate the effects, or, or, and also resilience in the economy, because a short-term you know, investment in something infrastructure-based doesn't generate a real long-term job. And as we know, as it says in your paper, a lot of green jobs actually there's a lot of, of investment to begin with. There's a lot of jobs. And then long term, you need fewer people to manage some of our, our green energy solutions. So so what happens to the jobs then? So I'm worried about the, the idea that we might be developing a, a little short term boost, but we're not really shifting the whole economy for the long term. Yeah, it's an important question, Amanda. I mean, I think the, the headline point here is that there are more jobs, more green jobs per unit of energy uh, than there are in, uh, in dirty industries. So, so the starting point is that we are net creating more jobs. And then some of those jobs will be longer term uh, and sustainable and for, you know, for a good while into the future because um, we've got to keep operating the new clean economy that we're going to be building. Other uh, parts of this work are short term. And now, you know, that would be a problem if we we're in an economy at full employment that was roaring along, where actually moving people out of the productive things they're doing and putting them onto this green transformation would be a reduction in overall prosperity and productivity for the economy as a whole. Now, that's not where we are today. We're in the middle of a pandemic and a recession. And when you're in a recession, precisely the thing you want are some short-term jobs to keep the economy going so that if you've just lost your job pulling pints, uh, you can go and start planting pines. Or if you've been 
uh, driving cars uh, that you know are no longer needed on the road, then you can go and be in installing car chargers. So this sort of short-term, long-term balance happens to be kind of perfectly suited to the moment that we're in now. You can create these short-term jobs, deliver the transition, and when the economy's back and roaring again, everybody can go on to other things that are equally productive uh, in a newer and a cleaner, cleaner world. Because some of the jobs are, are associated with with a big green infrastructure project, like the the announcement of um, the new nuclear power plant at Sizewell in Suffolk, you know, and the claim there was ten thousand jobs coming um, from that um, from that construction. Now they won't be jobs in in rural Suffolk; there'll be jobs associated with the construction, and then they'll go. Because there is an issue, isn't there, about the fact that sustainable renewable technologies and uh, energy producers that you need fewer people to to manage the wind farm than you did to to run the coal fired power station. So so I, I guess we do have a concern that the jobs will be there. And then what will those people do? I mean, we have to then reskill and retrain the, the people who've been involved in building the infrastructure projects to do something else, or will we just go off and build a, another green renewable infrastructure project? Well, there's an awful lot of building to be done, uh, not just in the next decade, but in the next three decades. I mean, in, in the paper we just uh, released with the Committee on Climate Change, uh, we're describing this as we are the generation that are the Victorians of the 21st century. The awful, huge amount of infrastructure to be, to be built. And then in the second half of the century, that infrastructure will just hum away and provide us with very cheap, uh, energy, very cheap services, uh, at, at very little effort and cost. But, you know, we're nowhere near there yet. There's a generation worth of labor. Uh, to go into this uh, endeavor. Uh, and the fact that when we're done, we can sit back and sip pina coladas is in economic terms, a positive thing, not, not a negative. I mean, the reason renewable energy is cheaper in the long run is because you don't have to start digging up black and brown stuff and burning it uh, and labor away in ways that are unsatisfactory. You can just simply sit back and enjoy the fruits of the transformation. We don't have a good history or track record in this country of reskilling our workforce, though, do we? And I think back to, you know, I'm old enough to remember the miners' strike and the closing of the mines. I don't think a lot of those, those men, and primarily they were men, were reskilled and retrained to, to, to take on new jobs. How are we going to tackle that? Because that is an issue. I'm afraid that's right. Uh, it's absolutely right. We've done some work with economic historians uh, at Oxford looking at multiple generations, and you see social deprivation in the data. It's statistically significant three generations later. So we haven't done a good job. Uh, the next question is, well, who has done a good job? Uh, and the answer is not that many countries. You know, the Le- Netherlands have in some instances of reskilling. So we, we have to take this um, challenge head on, not pretend it doesn't exist. The, the one thing that's going for us is that it does happen that quite a few of the jobs uh, that will be created are in geographically in areas where you will see declines of one industry and rises of another. So you know, shipbuilding uh, to get the, the offshore wind turbines into place. There's whole uh, communities on the coasts that have been doing oil and gas and are now doing North Sea wind production. Now, they're different skill sets, but the fact that they're in the same geographies means that if, if you think sensibly about it, uh, and remember, this is, this is a transition that happens over decades. So it's not actually about firing lots of people now. That isn't necessary. I mean, it will be necessary if we don't grab the ball by the horns, but it's not necessary now. We can let, let these industries run their natural course, have a dignified end, 
uh, and for the workers to retire. But what we don't want to be doing is skilling up replacement workers for jobs that will no longer exist. We need to skill up the young today for the jobs that will be required in the future. And uh, uh, with sensible policy, we can get this right. But Amanda, you're right. The, the, the past uh, track record of doing this isn't so good. In terms of the broader, longer term questions, you're absolutely right that we need to be thinking about what, so forgive me for being an economist for a moment, but how we think about the capitals of the country uh, uh, are in place for the future. So we've just done some work with the Chinese, doing some with the Indonesians now. I think, do you have the right sets of skills? Do you have the right human capital? Do you have the right social capital, the, the ways in which we work together, our institutions, levels of trust? Do we have the right physical capital for you know, highly productive, prosperous, happy societies of the future, which are, which are clean as well. Uh, and in many instances, you know, we're not necessarily on the right path here. Uh, and part of the story, it isn't just about scrapping the dirty infrastructure and replacing the clean infrastructure. I mean, it's a very big part of the story, don't get me wrong. But there's a whole set of associated skills, uh, occupations that indeed have to emerge and shifts in the way we you know, relate to each other uh, to make this transition to net zero uh, as seamless as possible and to ensure that when we come out on the other side, we generally do have an economy and an society that we would all really like to live in. I'm really interested you said that because when I'm looking at the kind of the policy recommendations you make in, in the paper, I mean, there's 10 policy recommendations. Some of them seem quite, um, I don't know, they're domestic and they're, they're, they're very personal. They're about, you know, um, you know, nature-based solutions, planting more trees and having sustainable, friendly agriculture and, you know, things like, you know, home retrofits and renovations. I mean, things that for most of us feel manageable and doable and are actually about our own lives in relation to the bigger picture. And, and that's incredibly important, isn't it? As you say, talk about building the sense of trust, building the sense that we're all together connected as a society moving forward on that. I mean, are you, are you hopeful that those will be taken up as, as policy recommendations? Are you, do you feel that there will be the impetus to do that? Because retrofitting people's homes is not terribly sexy, is it? Just saying we're going to go around and provide, you know, better insulation for everybody. It's not a massive, great headline grabbing, vote winning type of strategy, but it is incredibly important. And we all know if we use less energy, we need to create less energy and that's going to help too. So are you hopeful that there will be a response in government and in the right areas to actually take policies like that up? Yeah, I am, um, in that I think while it may not be sexy, uh, it certainly creates a very large number of jobs, which you know, is what people need in the middle of a recession. Um, living in a drafty, cold house is no fun for anybody, and living in a nice, insulated house is a real pleasure, as well as it saves you money on your bills. So it may not be sexy, but comfort is a good driver of human motivation, too. That not everything's about sex, dare I say. Uh, and um, point seven on the 10-point plan is about um, green buildings. The Committee on Climate Change uh, and the government itself recognise that actually this, this is not straightforward, Amanda. It's not it's because people are worried about the disruption of having builders or other people into their uh, houses. Um, we did some research a long time ago showing that uh, the perceptions of both the financial cost and the uh, and the disruption uh, don't map onto reality. People think it's going to be much more expensive and much more disruptive than it actually is. So you know, quite a lot of this is is about um, you know making sure that there is a there is general buy-in and a good understanding of 
what is actually going to happen when, when we roll out these sorts of changes. Yeah, it is quite costly. I mean, replacing a gas system or an oil fire system with a air source or ground source heat pump, for example, is quite costly. She says, speaking directly from personal experience it, it, at it the is. moment. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so I'm not saying it's not costly, but but if you do a survey of people's perceptions of how much it costs. Um, they perceive it to be some, more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if I could just just swing around a little bit, Jen, to, to the whole idea of leadership, because I mean, one of the reasons, as, as Alyssa said in our introduction, that, that we're, we're having these conversations and that the university's network has been formed is to try and provide a framework for, for good leadership discussions at COP. I mean, how do you see the, the UK in terms of, of our role on the international stage, um, leading this sort of sustainable recovery? And, and what are the what are the hopes for, for the UK leadership and the presidency of COP? I think the hopes are pretty high. Uh, certainly what we need in the global climate effort is ambition. Uh, 2020 is the year that the Paris Agreement starts work. And so to miss this first COP of the Paris Agreement is difficult. Uh, you know, like a lot of my students where perhaps there's not as much oversight and uh, deadlines maybe could slip, uh, the ambition mechanism didn't really work as well as we hoped this year. The pledges that countries were supposed to bring were a bit slow. And it is heartening to see that the UK worked with France and the UN Secretary General's office to do the Climate Ambition Summit on December 12th. So that brought forward over 70 pledges. Uh, 45 of them were directly related to new pledges to the Paris Agreement itself. The rest were net zero or adaptation plans. So that's a really good sign that the UK is playing a leadership role and really kind of embracing its role as the COP president. Uh, the next year is going to be difficult. I mean, we can't meet in person and usually these meetings bring 20, maybe even 30,000 people. So how we continue to do that is going to be interesting. The UK has a lot of things going for it. Uh, a huge diplomatic network, a very strong network of embassies and consulates around the world that can kind of work in country in lieu of sort of having uh, Alok Sharma on a plane talking to everybody. So hopefully the leadership will emerge and continue to emerge. It's done quite, they've done quite well so far this year, I would say, especially under the circumstances. Yeah, and there have been some encouraging signs. I mean, obviously, you know, the call from the Committee on Climate Change to, 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 to speed up our reduction of carbon emissions, you know, to bring that date forward and those sorts of things are encouraging. I worry, I mean, worrying a bit about being political here, but I worry a little bit about tone. Um, I do worry that our leaders perhaps don't see this as quite as much of an emergency as the rest of us do. And, and perhaps, you know, I, I resent slightly being described as an eco-freak who eats mung beans. I mean, I wonder if perhaps we've really grasped that actually this is a, very big, diplomatic, serious international issue that we should be discussing in diplomatic, serious international terms and not perhaps in the kind of glib throwaway remarks. So so I do have a concern about that, but that may just be window dressing. I mean, you call in your paper for the, 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 the cabinet committee, which I don't think has met as frequently as perhaps it should, to be reshaped and turned into a, a climate committee for emergency. I mean, is that likely to happen, do you think? Do you think there's going to be that sort of response to government? That's a great question, which I don't know if I can answer. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, I think at the end of the day, what we're really calling for with some of these institutional mechanisms is to mainstream climate thinking throughout the work of government and particularly throughout the, the stimulus spending that could restart the economy. Uh, so investing in roads may not be the best plan. It also doesn't create as many jobs as 
investing in retrofitting homes. So that kind of thinking we suggest, we think at least, is a good idea to put the climate and the green uh, investments at the fore because the economic benefits and the job creation will follow. One of the interesting things is that Boris in the in the forward to the 10 point plan announced the creation of task force net zero to put a systems approach at the heart of thinking uh, by the government on climate. Um, it's actually something that we also called for in a, in a separate paper for the Committee on Climate Change that was launched on the 9th of December. But I think the, the message here from uh, the paper that Jen led and others is that we don't yet have the institutional structures that we need to get us to net zero at the pace required. So Amanda, that's the core point here. And as you say, the cabinet committee hasn't met frequently enough, but that's in a sense, a symptom of a, of a deeper issue that we actually need to really think through a whole of government approach to this that puts this uh, at the top of the agenda in the cabinet meetings. What, what we can't continue to have as we've had over the last 20 years is situations where you know, every ministry has their priorities. Climate, of course, is one of them, but there are other priorities too, and you have to trade off between priorities. And when push comes to shove, you know, fixing the new boiler or installing the new electric charge point or putting that extra bit of money to, you know, a wind farm or, or whatever it is, somehow gets bumped in favour of something else. So, so that's really the core point here. These institutional structures coupled with the, the strength of vision and leadership, and we're, we're starting to get that. From the government, the sense of you know painting a, a positive, accurate view of a, a green industrial revolution and a prosperous future, but it, but it now needs to embed itself properly throughout government. I think that's what we were calling for in our in our university's paper, and um, and we're not there yet, but but I think there are some signs that there are there is reorganisation in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I I'm going to jump in and just add something there because I think that that's where this discussion about where jobs are being created in the economy is really powerful. Because the jobs um, that we identified in the paper are being created across all of the sectors that touch upon all of the ministries. And that's really powerful. And they're not all just new jobs. So some of this is making sure that where there's road building, the road building is using materials that don't cause excess flooding when we see changes in precipitation from climate change. And that the jobs that are related to house renovations are reskilling people who already do home renovations to be able to offer you your low carbon heating options, which quite frankly, and you probably realize this when you try to do it in your own home, Amanda, it's very tricky to convince installers that this isn't a crazy idea. And mm. actually those of us who are already convinced that it's a fantastic idea will make the effort to do so. But plenty of people, they're not in the job of educating the people who are, who are helping them <laughs> out, right? So um, as soon as those different ministries come together and start to see that the future skills of the workforce that are essentially their workforce in the Department for Transport or um, MCHLG, the workforce they need to build homes for the future, need to have these skills, then that's going to help them embrace this agenda without feeling like they have to, you know, put on hair shirts and eat mung beans. <laughs> yeah, we should steer away from mung beans. Absolutely right, Alyssa. And I think it's quite interesting that the structures that you call for in the paper, I mean, a, a, along with the, the, the Climate Change Emergency Committee, um, and the net zero delivery body, you're actually asking for a national investment bank. 
So looking at really tying this right into the financial infrastructure of the UK. I mean, what would a national investment bank do and how would it work, Jen? I mean, it it sounds like a fabulous thing, but but what would be the benefits of such such an institution? Well, I think it's getting to what Alyssa was just talking about is that, and Cameron as well, that each ministry wants to have its own spend and wants to have its own infrastructure investment. And especially if we're talking about changing over time and transitioning towards low carbon and more resilient infrastructure, that requires coordination across departments. And it also can help spend money more efficiently if you have a single body that's in charge. So partly we're thinking of efficiency, but also that that coordination piece to really look ahead and say, okay, can we invest in infrastructure in a way that really many jobs could be green jobs if we think about it? And it's important to bring the the wider financial community with you, isn't it? Because I I think that one of the things that we say so often about the green recovery is not just it's going to create jobs, but actually there's a huge amount of investment potential here and quite a high return on investment, not just green return in terms of the benefits to to our world and our planet, but actual high financial returns for investors in the long term. So actually having a bank where we can bring business and the financial institutions with us I presume, will be really helpful. My take on this is that um, the the starting question to ask is, uh, can you just leave it up to the existing private actors within the financial system? And, you know, many things you can. I mean, they're there to find profitable things to finance. They are in a good position to assess the risk and to assess the returns and work out whether they fit together. Uh, And so, you know, you don't necessarily need uh, an investment bank for health or investment bank or investment bank for whatever. So why do we need one to focus on these issues? And I think Jen has really just hit on the answer, which is that there's an awful lot of coordination to happen. There are parts of this transformation that are you know, still in the lab. There are things that are commercially viable. Uh, and there's you know, the so-called valley of death in the middle. They're pre-commercial, but they're not yet being supported by grant funding or, or perhaps even early stage um, venture capital. And so there, there are these missing areas within the financial ecosystem where um, you know, we had a green investment bank, let's not forget, not that long ago, uh, where, where a vehicle like that or an institution like that can, can just make sure that we're not allowing really viable, valuable technologies and associated ecosystems building just falling through the cracks because there's no particular source of capital for them at the particular phase of development um, that they're, they're at. And the, the other reason to have one is that even with the more developed kind of commercial large-scale rollouts, there's you know, a certain, certain risk-return balance that uh, the private financial uh, organizations are willing to bear and that might not be quite right for you know the, the rollout of many of the green technologies that we need just yet now you can plug those gaps with policy instruments like complicated contracts for difference and so on and don't get into them now but the, no, another way of plugging those gaps is, is within a national investment because quite often, and it's something I think that we see in universities, I mean, you know, happens a lot at Imperial and Grantham and a lot at Oxford, I'm sure, it, with smaller startups coming through, providing really exciting, innovative solutions, everything from food packaging through to, to you know, battery technology. And so the amounts of investment those smaller startups, pre-market, um, you know, businesses need is actually quite small, isn't it? And they struggle to sometimes attract the kind of investment that you were referring to. So would a bank of this kind be able to invest in, in those smaller startups who are probably quite edgy, but 
may well be providing some of the key solutions we need to climate change. Yeah, I'm not sure that's quite the sweet spot for this sort of institution. Um, I mean, I, you're right, Amanda. We, I do see, as director of the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment, I see an awful lot of these uh, startups on a small, more than weekly basis. And it's really very exciting, actually. Um, the UK's got a really great track record, actually, at, at having brilliant ideas. And we've got some, some of the best scientists and social scientists in the world. And we're actually not too bad at doing the first step of taking those ideas and converting them into early stage companies where we have tended to be um, you know, less strong, perhaps in comparison with, with America and others, is, is kind of the next few stages. You know, be, before you're a, um, a FTSE 100 listed company, but, but after you've had a, a, a stage of public grants and a couple of stages of uh, venture capital. So it's that, that growth uh, mid and large scale private equity or whatever the, the, where there's a bit of a missing gap. So, so that's, that's a key area, I think. Uh, and the other one, as I say, is just in, it's going back to Jen's point, really, just making sure that we don't let really great ideas and businesses fall through the cracks because there isn't, there isn't a particular, you know, the policy isn't quite right at the right time. And I just add, add to this that something that a national investment bank does in this area is it, it speaks and sends a signal to the rest of the traditional financial community to say, this is a normal thing to do. Look, we're gonna take national money and we're gonna do something that ultimately is quite straightforward. The bank does not have to take huge risks. It doesn't need to have to even sort of compromise too heavily on returns actually. It just has to do things a couple of times so that all of the rest of the people in the sector decide that, hold on a second, this is quite normal. Why are we letting the national bank do it? We want in. So it's just to kind of give it a kickstart. And that worked really well when we previously had a green investment bank. Um, and so that's also quite important at this, at, this, at this bigger scale. So we shouldn't underestimate that. And that speaks directly to this issue about skills, because we're not just talking about skills creation in the things that we can immediately think of, the person who comes and builds me my low carbon heating system. We need to make sure also that people who work in the service sector and the financial sector are also ready to step a bit outside their traditional box use their existing fantastic traditional skills and apply them also in this space. But where they don't yet have, um, perhaps courage is unfair, but, the, but the, the comfort perhaps to do so, then a national investment bank can give them that. So much of this conversation has been about leadership, hasn't it, Alyssa? And it's about stepping up and taking that leadership role. And, you know, one of the calls in your paper, both um, Cameron and Jen, is for, a, for, a, for global leadership, for a sustainable recovery alliance. So we really use COP26 and our presidency as a way of actually setting the, the standards for, for moving forward and, and actually having a whole, a whole earth approach to that. I mean, it's enormously ambitious. Um, but, but we might as well set ourselves a really ambitious target, might we? Because this is our once in a lifetime chance to do that. Can, can I ask you, do you have, I mean, because we really ought to draw the conversation to a close, but do you have a kind of call out either for policymakers or for government that you'd like to, you'd like to share? Jen, start with you. Gosh. I mean, other than just do this. Um, <laughs> that's a good enough call out to me. <laughs> I mean, I know it sounds a bit like a, a trainer's. Yeah, uh, a shoe yeah. company, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, I think maybe the main call is just this is doable, and this is more doable than it has been ever before in history, uh, and this makes enormous sense. You know, it's a win-win-win. We can address energy poverty, we can build resilience, we can improve health, uh, create jobs, and help the environment. 
I guess that's five wins. But uh, at the end of the day, this is doable and the time really is now. Yeah, absolutely. Cameron? Um, well, Jen r- rightly uh, gave the positive message, so let me balance that with a, a slightly more negative one. Um, I guess my call would be, uh, in addition to the five wins, you've got multiple losers if you don't do this, uh, and losses, losers and losses. Uh, and putting money into further fossil fuel exploration or investment at this stage, one, you're wasting your money. Two, you're building stuff that is going to have to be scrapped early. Three, you're perpetuating skills and jobs rather than using the money to retrain uh, people into higher productivity, higher value jobs that are going to be uh, valuable for, for the future. Uh, four, you're perpetuating the, the air pollution that kills so many people right now, in addition to five, the climate uh, that we're damaging. So, I mean, I think uh, as as valuable, well, these two things have to go together. One, make sure that we do do the things that we need to do uh, and can do and should do economically. But also, it's it's no longer enough to do an all of the above strategy. You can't do the good stuff and the bad stuff. We've actually got to stop doing the bad stuff. And if that takes countries saying to their private sectors, we will no longer be doing X from date Y. Like we will no longer be selling internal combustion engine vehicles in our country from 2030. That also, I'm afraid, that stick has to go along now with the carrot because we don't have time just for carrots. There's a certain amount of whipping that has to go on as well. A very balanced approach, I feel, a bit of stick and carrot. Alyssa, I mean, in your roles, coordinating the network, what are some of the call outs that are in, in your mind that you're thinking about? Because, you know, you have a role at Grantham as well, you know, with, around policy and translation of that policy, um, in, you know, with, with the academic thinking into policies. So would you have a call out as well to, to, to add to that? I mean, I think my very practical call out, which relates directly to us bringing all these academics together, is um, we're here to help. Come and talk to us. You know, people like Jen and Cameron have spent a lot of time thinking really deeply about these issues. Um, and, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, that knowledge gets trapped in a bit of an academic bubble. Um, the thinking is really interesting. There's a lot of really valuable evidence and a lot of ideas. And, and everybody in our community really wants um, to strengthen those connections. So whether you're someone new to the civil service, new to this topic, someone who uh, feels like you have 20 or 30 years of work experience and you suddenly want to know what this green dimension does to that. Um, there are plenty of people in the academic community happy to share knowledge with you and please come to us. Yeah, fantastic note to end on. And that's exactly why we're putting together this series of podcasts, isn't it? To kind of illuminate and and enlighten those who haven't had a chance to read the briefings. Though I would say the briefings are hugely accessible and, and for anyone who hasn't read the network briefings, you really need to. Um, thank you so much to um, to my co-host, to Alyssa. Thanks, Veda. And to our guests, Cameron and Jennifer, thank you for being with us. It's been really, really interesting and a bit of an intellectual workout for me. So I'm very grateful. So thank you for that. Thanks, Amanda. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been a fantastic discussion to kick off the series of the Climate Papers. Future podcasts will cover many of the main subjects in the run-up to COP26, and we hope you will subscribe via your favourite podcast provider of choice or via the website. You can find this episode and others on the Grantham Institute website or on the University of Glasgow COP26 website. Thank you for being with us, and thank you to my guests, and goodbye. The Climate Papers is brought to you by Planet Pod Productions and sponsored by the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London. 